Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. Been trying to take care of some household stuff before winter hits too bad, and, you know, it's been going pretty well. I did run into a little bit of a problem in one area. You see, my fence needs painting, and I don't wanna. Now, I considered hiring somebody to do this, but watching the Karate Kid leads me to believe that anyone who paints fences professionally has got to be amazing at karate by now. And that really puts me at a disadvantage when it comes to negotiating. So, I really think my only option is to go the Tom Sawyer route. Yeah, I'm just gonna have to convince Rush to write a hit song about painting my fence. And I bet that'll make enough money that I can hire those karate guys to paint my fence for me. So, if you're listening, Getty Lee, or Neil Pert or other guy from Rush, then get to work writing that song and then send me a percentage of the royalties. You can send them to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Thanks, Neil, Getty, and other guy. Good to get that out of the way. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Fred Groves, and it's a doozy. He requested it be sung in the style of Buddy Hackett from The Music Man. Ah yes, Buddy Hackett's song from The Music Man. The one song in the show that's total nonsense, is completely plot irrelevant, and somehow still about sexual harassment. Alright, well, here goes. Well, a demon's fate to clean up your mess will often get ginmopsis, and those deep night thoughts of our ultimate fate, that's the poem Thanatopsis. But the quick rundown of a comic book tale, head in the clouds, feet on the ground, that's the stuff you're glad you're found, that is your synopsis. Synopsis, 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 the rhyme that's hard to get. Synopsis, 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 but you can spit one yet. Synopsis. Thanks, Fred. That was actually a lot more fun than I'd anticipated. I know I went more Rex Harrison than Buddy Hackett because I kind of prefer talking my way through songs, but I think you got the gist. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 7, April 1985. The Origin of Lilith. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Phil Felix, colored by Adrian Roy, and there's no editor credited, so I'm left to assume that this dang thing edited itself. Neat. Teen Titan Roll Call. Lilith. Starfire. Jericho. Nightwing. Wonder Girl. Cyborg. Beast Boy. And an amnesiac alien angel. Previously in New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the new Teen Titans tangled with the old Greek Titans of mythological fame. One of the OGTs, a solar-powered scumbag named Hyperion, who I called Fuckface on account of he was a fuckface, mentally coerced Wonder Girl into being his girlfriend. Told you he was a fuckface. 
An epic battle ensued which saw the new Teen Titans teaming up with the ancient Greek gods to beat up the old Greek Titans. At the conclusion of this titanic tussle, Fuckface and his OGT buddies agreed to go live in Tartarus, the ancient Greek land of the dead, and try to set up a commune or something there. The only OGT unaccounted for when the Tartarus train left the building was Fuckface's estranged wife, and also estranged sister, Thea, who had been MIA for the entire story arc. In more recent news, our titular teenagers ran afoul of an amnesiac alien angel, who'd apparently been frozen in ice when his spaceship crashed on Earth. Upon defrosting, this formerly frozen forgetful feathered fellow formed an instant emotional bond with the temperamentally telepathic temporary teen titan Lilith. When the sporadically psychic red-haired adventurer and the winged extraterrestrial were near each other, sparks started flying. Literally! Lilith started radiating dangerous levels of heat, and her teammates decided, based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever, and despite Lilith's protestation to the contrary, that the amnesiac alien angel was probably mind-controlling Lilith and trying to hurt her. Over their occasionally intuitive allies' objections, our heroes attacked the seemingly celestial stranger, chasing him all over the city until the flying fugitive finally fled Fun City. The angelic extraterrestrial apparently ended up in a treehouse that looked like a life-size Ewok playset in Pendleton, Oregon, where I guess he learned how to speak English. Good for him. During the angel's stay in this inexplicably arboreal abode, Lilith and the other Titans saved the universe by thwarting Raven's extra-dimensional bad dad Trigon. Hooray! When a publicity-hungry Mayor Ed Koch staged a parade in the Titans' honor, her pinion-possessing newly Pendletonian pal saw Lilith on television and used his newfound mastery of the English language to declare his love for the Auburn Trust ingenue and fly off into the sky yelling about his feelings. Gadzooks! Just what is Thea up to that's so danged important she can't go live in Greek hell with her philandering brother-slash-husband? Will our heroes ever apologize for their unprovoked attack on the amnesiac alien angel? And will we finally learn the enigmatic avian man's appellation so that I can stop trying to find synonyms for winged? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so getting involved in the publishing industry? Nope. And? <sighs> no. No, we will not. So from here on in, I'm just going to call him AAA and trust that you'll know I don't mean the American Automobile Association. Lilith is having a bad dream that she is on fire. Apparently this sort of thing happens to her a lot. Also, sometimes, she radiates intense heat for no particular reason. It seems like that sort of thing might have come up before, but... I guess one of the benefits of being an underutilized character who took nearly a decade-long break between her appearances is that you're afforded a little bit of privacy. Good for her. As Lilith tosses and turns, AAA flies around New York and yells melodramatically about his feelings. It is the 80s, so maybe he learned English by watching soap operas like Santa Barbara on television and thinks that's a normal way for people to interact. I can see him identifying with that show. He does look a little bit like Detective Cruz Castillo. Hmm. AAA swings by Lilith's apartment, but she's not there, because she is in Greenwich Village attending an art fair with Coriander. The two pals are having a nice time hanging out with counterculture types and quickly find some paintings they are interested in buying. They're surprised and delighted when they find out that the artwork they had their eye on is by none other than their old pal and fellow titan Jericho, who is sitting on the grass nearby, performatively eating a bowl of soup, because, 
Like I said, he's an artist. Before Lilith and Starfire get a chance to ask for a friends and family discount on Jericho's paintings, the AAA swoops down, grabs a delighted Lilith, and takes back to the skies. A crowd of New Yorkers is stunned and amazed by AAA's appearance. They gawk skyward like they've never seen a dude with wings before. Jeez. Hawkman really ought to fire his publicist. Starfire takes a quick look around and decides that nobody is paying any attention to her, a bright orange seven-foot-tall supermodel, so she is totally free to discard her impenetrable disguise of a pair of sunglasses and pursue Triple A, who she still believes to be a no-good Lilith napper. She is briefly disabused of this notion when she sees Lilith smooching her purported captor. That seems pretty quick for Stockholm Syndrome to set in, so the space princess is about to let the two lovebirds one quarter of which may be actual bird, fly away in peace. Unfortunately, just then, Lilith begins to suffer from one of her newly retconned into being a thing, bouts of intense heat radiation. Uh-oh. Starfire reverts to her initial assumption that AAA is harming her red-haired pal and blasts the birdman out of the sky. As Coriander catches a falling Lilith, the part-time precognate pleads for her pal to not hurt her bird-like boyfriend. Jericho rushes to the spot where AAA fell to the earth and helps the fallen angel to his feet. A few seconds later, Starfire lands and suggests that they all head back to Lilith's apartment to talk things over. Meanwhile, at the uptown corporate headquarters of Sun Publishing Incorporated, the company's cutthroat CEO is going about her daily routine. She yells at, fires, and belittles most of her employees before heading into her spacious, plushly appointed private office for a meeting with a handsome blonde dude named Michael. Mike's got some bad news. He was supposed to represent Sun Publishing in their attempt to take over Venture Magazine, and it didn't go so great. Turns out that while Sun had the highest bid throughout the process, at the last minute, they got scooped by a rival. The CEO is pretty sure that Michael was bribed into blowing the deal. Michael's pretty nervous about the whole thing, but then his boss starts smooching him. Weird. Then she burninates the shit out of him, melting the flesh right off of his skull. Gross. The murderous exec then turns to the window and briefly talks to herself about how great the sun is. One of the dudes she was berating earlier barges into her office and tries to give her some guff about an editorial she's running in one of her magazines. So she burninates him to death too, but this time without the smooches. The pyromaniacal publishing maven delivers a brief soliloquy in which she reveals that she is none other than the missing old Greek titan, Thea. Hi, Thea! Thea changes into a fancy yellow dress, melts her window, and flies out of it, proclaiming as she does so that she can now sense the presence of someone she's been searching for for a long time. I hope it's a good therapist, because melting people is not a healthy way to express your dissatisfaction with co-workers. Although, I admit, it is tempting at times. Corey. Back at Lilith's apartment, Lilith fills Jericho, Starfire, and AAA in on the fact that she has intense nightmares, occasional bouts of uncontrollable pyrokinesis, and has been searching for her parents her whole life. Hmm. When Lilith finishes her exposition, AAA declares his love for her. Okay. I mean, that's nice and all, AAA, but not particularly relevant to what she was just talking about. Although it is totally the kind of thing Cruz Castillo would do on Santa Barbara. So, I guess that makes sense. 
Before AAA can whisk Lilith away like she's Eden Capwell, heiress to the Capwell fortune, Thea shows up and melts the shit out of Lilith's windows. The tempestuous Titan grabs a surprised Lilith and is like, Hey, turns out I'm your mom. Come on, let's get out of here. Wow. I'll say this for Thea. She knows how to make an entrance. Once their initial shock wears off, Starfire and AAA attempt to intervene to prevent the murdery sun goddess from abducting her alleged daughter. Thea kicks Coriander's ass for a minute, but then the magic space princess rallies and actually holds her own pretty well against the ancient Greek powerhouse. Eventually, Thea tires of the battle, makes some kind of a lava portal in the sky, and whisks Lilith away for parts unknown. Unable to follow, Starfire, Jericho, and AAA decide to call the rest of the Titans in for a consultation. Cyborg and Beast Boy are hanging out on a bridge talking about how bored they are when they get an emergency call. Gar turns into a giant bird and carries Vic off to the Titans' temporary headquarters at Star Labs. The gang's original base of operation, a T-shaped skyscraper, is still undergoing repairs from when a giant demon pooped in it and threw it at them. Once the team is assembled, Dick opens up McPaint on the Star Lab supercomputer and whips up an artist's rendition of Thea based on Starfire's description. Once he is done, Donna is like, Wait a minute, I know that lady. When Fuckface telepathically controlled me into being his girlfriend, he kept showing me mental images of his wife-slash-sister. That's her. Presumably, the gang all takes about a half hour of stunned silence to reflect on what a weird shitty asshole that fuckface fuckface is, but they probably had to cut that out for time. When they're done staring at each other in horrified silence, the Titans decide to fly over to Paradise Island, because that's where the gateway to Tartarus is, and there now seems to be a pretty good chance that the new Teen Titans will need to check in on the not-so-new not-so-teen Titans. When the T-Jet arrives at Donna's girlhood home, the place seems strangely quiet. And also strangely smashed up. Hmm. Wonder Girl and Starfire head down to investigate, and are shocked to find that all the Amazons are missing. Donna's pretty freaked out that her mom and all her buddies are gone. She heads back to the T-Jet and tells her teammates that the absent Amazons are almost certainly being held hostage in Greek hell and that the new Teen Titans are just going to have to march right down there as well to rescue them and Lilith. To be continued. Wait a minute. Didn't all the Amazons decide to move to another dimension one time without leaving a forwarding address back in the late 60s? That was how Wonder Woman lost her powers for a while. Hey Donna, are you sure you don't want to go back down there and check and see if they left a note? Maybe they just moved. Joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. I am not as well-rested as I always am for this show, but I think I'll do okay. That's fine. Yeah. Well, sleep deprivation never hurt anybody. Keeps you sharp, keeps you on your toes. Okay. That's what I seem to recall from those Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Oh, yeah, they were on their toes. Often. Yeah, they had to be. They mm -hmm. had to be keep ahead of Freddy. Yep. He'll kill them in their dreams. Pretty scary. Yeah, he's no good. I don't I don't care for that guy. Mm -mm. No thanks. Good thing Dawkins took him down. Is that what happened? The they had the Dream Warriors song, but I don't know if they really can take credit for taking him down. 
Well, I think, like, they probably inspired the Dream Warriors that were the titular characters in their song to do their best against Freddy, and they took him down. They were, like, you know, casting a Dawkins Bard's spell. Is that a thing? Sure. All right. Good job, Dawkins. You have plus two charisma. All right. Those are Dungeons & Dragons words, right? Sure. I'm sorry you're sleepy. It's okay. How are you? I'm doing okay. I've been burning a lot of things in my yard. I, I built a fire pit, and uh, it's very satisfying to burn things you don't want anymore, like bills, bills. and uh, uniforms from old jobs. What? Yeah. I had what? a t-shirt they used to make me wear at a job I once had, and I burned it, and it felt good. I didn't realize I still had it, and then I found it, and I was like, ooh, that's going in the fire. Man, I don't remember you having ever a job that required a uniform except for Arby's, which had that hat that made you so mad. Oh, God, I wish I still had that hat so I could burn it. <laughs> that'd, that'd show it. Yeah. Teach it a lesson. Mm-hmm. A lesson of fire. Yeah. Speaking of. Let's talk about this comic book. All right. Corey, what'd you think of this comic? I thought... I would be sad about the change-up in the art team, and mm-hmm. I was mistaken, mostly. It's really freaking good. It is really good. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez takes over the art on this. Um, we do still have a gorgeous George Perez cover. It looks to be a painted cover, and it's a combination, I believe, of photo montage and paint on top of that, and it's really, really nicely executed. But yeah, the interior art is really, really good. It's a little bit different than I remembered uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's art looking. I had remembered his style as being more similar to Perez's. And there are times when it is, but I feel like at least at first he's maybe trying to distance himself from Perez's style a little bit and taking a more stylistic approach to certain pages. There's a couple of pages that look more like uh, like kind of Walt Simonson or even like Howard Chaikin style, almost art deco style mm-hmm. art. And I think it really works for this. And uh, yeah, I, I of course miss George Perez. But I like me some uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez pretty darn good. We may need to find a shorter way to say his name. No, I'm just glad that it's written down on the cover and I'm looking at it because, yeah, as we discussed before, I have a tendency to try to call him uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But yeah, no, the the art, I think, is really, really solid. And uh, I was happy to see it. Mm -hmm. Good job. And overall, good issue for the most part. Couple of concerns are raised for me. We see that Thea is introduced. She's one of the old Titans. And I am of two minds on her introduction. A little bit weird to hear that she's Lilith's mom. Mm -hmm. So I'm stoked that we get a Lilith-centric story. Because I always really liked Lilith, and I don't think that we've had nearly enough of those. But I am concerned we're going to see more of Hyperion now. Mm -hmm. And I fucking hated that dude. And so I am especially concerned that we will have to deal with him back-to-back weeks with Codename Fuckface. And they have a really similar vibe that I really hate, and I believe I nicknamed them both variations on Fuckface. Mm-hmm. So we get Fuckface and Codename Fuckface. I feel like it's going to be confusing, and also I don't really want to see either of those dudes. You may be out of luck. 
I feel like I probably am. I am confused and also interested to learn what is the connection between our amnesiac angel friend and the rest of the uh, old or new titans. Yeah, I am curious about that as well. I also had, I think, misremembered. I went back and checked. I had thought we had met Thea with the other old titans when the titan new titans fought the old titans. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we did, actually. I think we had Hyperion make reference to the fact that he had lost her already. So that may have been setting up this story in a way that I hadn't realized. Mm-hmm. My fear is that somehow the... I'm going to call him AAA for short. Yeah. The angel is some stand-in or related to Hyperion, and he just maybe got bonked on the, the head. and. So you're seeing sort of... an old boy situation here. I hope not. Where... Because... Lilith, that would make Lilith his daughter, probably. I mean, at least his uncle, because that's right, Thea is also his sister, in addition to being his wife. So even if Lilith is not his child, he would still be her uncle. It's bad either way. It's not good. No. I hope that's not what's going on. Speaking of AAA, apparently he learned English. Mm -hmm. There's no mention of that at any point. He was speaking in the last issue without the little brackets around his words that said translated from indecipherable alien language. Mm-hmm. I just assumed maybe they were skipping that, but no, he is communicating clearly with the other Titans and with Lilith, which means that I guess he probably learned English in Pendleton? That's the only explanation. So do you think those Ewok hippies taught him? Sure. English? Yeah. Do you think when he got to... New York, where the Titans are, he gets freaked out when he sees people pumping their own gas, tries to stop them from doing that, tells them it's illegal. Um, Do you think he calls potato wedges JoJo's and doesn't understand why they're not called that when he gets there? Oh, I guess the gas thing is statewide, but the JoJo thing, I feel like, is that a statewide thing? I feel like that's a Portland-y thing. I don't know. There's honestly just not a ton of Oregon-specific slang. I was trying to look some up for that, and it was like, when I would try to find, like, articles, I'd be like, here's some Portland slang. They're like, when people say Californians, they mean dipshits. And I was like, that's Mm. not really slang. That's more just a bad attitude and general xenophobia. Yeah, we'll have to make some up, like, uh, I don't know, what's the Oregon thing? Well, I'll be hazelnutted. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, what does that mean? Or, he's a real hazelnut, like, uh, tough nut to crack. Oh, yeah. Because that's a tough nut to crack. But once you do, tasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. All right. So that's the kind of thing that the AAA's probably saying. Yeah. All the time. Man, it bums me out that, like, he, he learned English, apparently. It would be nice if he introduced himself. Even if it's like a, you can call me... A name he got off of a fucking hat or something. You know, he could do like a coming home and call himself Maxwell Hauser or something. Mm-hmm. Something. It would be nice to have a name to call this guy. I'm getting tired of Amnesiac Alien Angel or even AAA. It seems like the Titans would want to have something to call him. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason than it would help him humanize himself to them. So maybe they wouldn't just attack him all the time. They're better about it in this issue. I think because he can communicate with them some. But he still mostly doesn't, even though he can. Maybe, uh, well, feathers we can't use because that's back from the hippie days. But right. what about uh, wings? Sure. 
Because they love they Paul, Paul McCartney, McCartney yeah. bands. <laughs> sure. I told you about the time when I think it was like in the 90s, an old man was like, of course, you kids today probably think of Paul McCartney as the guy from Wings. Oh. And I was like, there's so many things wrong with that sentence. I really don't know where to start. It's best not to engage. <laughs> yeah. I just run away knocking things over behind me. It's a good general policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wings. Wings. We'll just call them wings. Let's call them wings. Or like, I don't know, Zach. Yeah? It's not based on anything. I'm just saying he could just pick a name. He could have watched that uh, Lego ad that was probably on around this time that had Zach the Lego Mania. That's true. He could call himself Ken, given his early appearances uh, where he had no genitals, which he displayed them prominently. Mm. Yeah, they added in a little loincloth thing. Yeah, I think that was probably a wise decision. One thing that's kind of interesting to learn is that even though his early appearances in Tales of the Teen Titans were first illustrated by George Perez, the character was designed by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Oh, really? Yeah. So kind of nice to see his vision of the character being front and center. Mm -hmm. It is also kind of funny to me to note that the WUBS helicopter goes by and is like, an angel? Bethany's gonna be so stoked about this. I think it's a nice bit of character building and somehow seems totally on brand that duplicitous, evil anchorwoman Bethany Snow is super into angels. Mm -hmm. I feel like she has probably patterned a fair amount of her public persona after Oprah. And so like, that she'd just be like, oh, yeah, uh, into angels? Check. I'm totally into angels. I think they're just so, I think they're real. Probably got a bunch of those uh, books from the 80s, too, about uh, angel stuff. Oh, totally. She got probably got a bunch of, like, homo figurines. Mm. Yeah, there was some good foreshadowing there, too, when they're flying around. It's uh, They go by the site of the uh, future Brother Blood megachurch that they're Yeah, going. I thought they were setting that up to be what when they first introduced Thea and Son Publishing, I thought there was going to be a Brother Blood tie-in there, but no, it was a little bit of misdirection and a little bit of foreshadowing, and I think that was a nice little touch, and like, keeps it in a consistent universe. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you about the time I tried to go to Oprah's Angel Museum in Beloit, Wisconsin? <laughs> nope. Okay, to be clear, I did not make a pilgrimage to Beloit, Wisconsin to attempt to attend this museum well even if you had nobody would think that much less of you <laughs> no 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 i'm just trying to be clear uh-huh i was in beloit wisconsin for a wedding and before i went i actually have a couple of friends that grew up there and i texted them and was like hey bizarrely i'm gonna be headed to beloit this summer anything i should be sure to check out and the first response was um i don't know the ihop <laughs> Oh. And the other one said, well, sure, the IHOP is great, but what about Oprah's Angel Museum? And Oprah does have a museum of angels that is in Beloit, Wisconsin. Unfortunately, they have surprisingly restrictive visitors hours, and I was not able to find a time when they were open. They were, like, closed weekends. I think they were open, like, 
three to six on Tuesdays and Thursdays, something like that. So I don't know to what extent this, like, Angel Museum is a tax dodge, or maybe that's where she keeps her objects of power that transform her into, um, you know, I can't actually think of anything more powerful than Oprah. Yeah, no, I think um, she's... <laughs> she's in her ultimate form already. Mm-hmm. If any of you have visited this museum, I would like to hear what they got in there. Is it all just Hummel figurines? Is there a portrait of Bethany Snow? Well, guess we're going to have to go check it out. Road trip! So what did you think of businesswoman Thea? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. My initial read on it was great bad person. Yeah. Powerful, strong, pretty evil. But then after thinking about it a little bit more, I was like, well, I guess they kind of had to do that because it was the 80s. And if you have a strong, successful woman, she's, she's got to be she's evil. She's got to be totally evil. And that kind of made it a little bit less fun yeah. through that lens. But at the same time, total, yeah, just an enjoyable uh, evil character. Yeah, I would have liked to see bigger shoulder pads on her if she's going to be an evil 80s businesswoman. Dude, we'll talk about it in the panels, but that picture of her after she burns the dude and she's still got the 80s dress on, that is super cool. A thoroughly nonchalantly evil and corrupt business person is one of my favorite tropes in fiction. In real life, I'm less fond of it. But yeah, no, I love it when that crops up, just the the casually evil. I think a really underrated example of that is Treat Williams' character in The Phantom. I love me some Treat Williams pretty good. But she gives off definitely, like, just callous sociopath business person vibes. I mean, obviously she murders two people within the span of a few minutes. Well, she also tears up all this artwork that her design crew worked really hard on into little tiny pieces, which... Takes a degree of vindictive patience that I'm really uncomfortable with. Yeah, and they're uniform, too. Like, mm-hmm. she's very methodical about this. I, that's what it takes to get ahead in publishing. Ooh, worst boss ever. Ooh, how, how would you stack her up against J. Jonah Jameson? I would work for him any day. Yeah? Yeah, he's just gonna, you know, yell at you, but he's not gonna burninate you. Probably not. Good call. Either way, publishers are not coming across great in the pages of recent comic books we've covered. <laughs> yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah, I was totally getting, like, American Psycho vibes off of her, just, like, sociopathic American corporate culture mm-hmm. stuff. And I thought it worked really, really well for her. I am made nervous by the ties to the old Titans, just because uh, still getting douche chills off of our interactions with uh, Hyperion, like, over a year ago now. Mm-hmm. But Thea, so far, so good. Bad mom, good businesswoman, nice burninating. Yeah, yeah. Creepy kissing the guy to death. Yeah, yeah, skull-melting kisses. And that's not a compliment. Mm-mm. There was uh, some nice little bridge shit-talking in here. Yeah, and also, um, I guess it wasn't really Simon and Garfunkel bashing, but just, like, pick a different bridge, guys. That one's not even worth a song. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like it's worth that song. (laughs) I wish they would have leaned into a little bit more Simon and Garfunkel bashing for that. In general, I like those guys. I like their music. 59th Street Bridge song is garbage. Mm. All is groovy. Oh, was that the feeling groovy one? Yeah, it's the feeling groovy song. Cobblestones feeling groovy. Yeah, I remember our music teacher used to, we had to sing that and 
class, that's gotta be, he's gotta be high, right? Oh, the music teacher. If you're a music teacher who makes a classroom of children sing like pop songs from the 60s, there's no way you're not high, right? My uh, elementary school music teacher, Mrs. Spaulding, had us sing as a class the uh, Cheers theme song. Oh, that sounds terrifying. A chorus of children singing the Cheers song? We just want to be somewhere where we're all the same, where everybody knows your name. Oh, man. I think I'm partly influenced because the intro to Cheers freaks Lisa the fuck out. The song? The song and the little accompanying intro credits with, like, the... I get the, like, pictures of, like, old-timey people. There's kind of a The Shining Mm -hmm. vibe you get from it. But coupled with that music, I I get it being creepy. And so, like, I picture, like, a chorus of children doing pretty much anything in unison is going to be pretty creepy. The one that we did for my elementary school class, other than the 59th Street Bridge song, which I do remember... We did something where they told us to sing in Jamaican accents. Oh, no. Uh, red, red wine. Sad to... S- no. <laughs> Ooh, that would have been around the UB40 era of red, red wine. So we wouldn't have been doing the Neil Diamond version. But it wasn't that one. It was the, uh, I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. Mm. But yeah, we had to sing that, and we were specifically instructed to sing with Jamaican accents. With a New England accent. Which, yeah, I can't believe would have coupled well with our New Hampshire accents. Oh. So. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Man. Music teachers. Murdering Calypso. <laughs> How did we get on that? that is oh, 59th Street Bridge song. Right. Yeah, that song's garbage. Mm-hmm. I was trying to unpack what Beast Boy is saying when they're sitting on the bridge. About He makes a comment about this Young Lust movie and says he wants to see how the other side lives. Yeah, I and don't... So I googled it and... what What is that movie? Is that a movie? There was a, a 1982 movie starring Fran Drescher oh. that was supposed to be like a uh, comedic take on a soap opera huh. called Young Lust. That did very poorly at the box office. Yeah, there's not really much of a, a write-up about it on Rotten Tomatoes or anything, but I, it still doesn't make any sense what he's saying about how the other side lives. Did you? No, I don't get it. Especially because if it's a soap opera, then I would suspect that it would be young, wealthy people. The name implies lusty. Young, lustful, wealthy people is very much Beast Boy's side of the street. Mm-hmm. Even not having the context for that, I'm like, that isn't really the way words generally go together. I think it's another example of Beast Boy just not understanding how banter works. Yeah. Whether it's flirtatious or even friendly banter. It's like, these are what jokes are shaped like, right? And I I put it down to that as well, because that's kind of my default for when I can't parse what he's said. So, okay. Yeah. Maybe it's just thrown off by what a shitty bridge that's a poor muse they're sitting on. Mm-hmm. I did notice after that, Cyborg rides him as a giant bird around. I don't think that's one we've seen before, have we? No, but that's pretty cool. It was like one of those Lord of the Rings eagles. Uh-huh. Not bad. Yeah. I bet that Cyborg is secretly pretty into, like, old school fantasy shit. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think it goes well with his drama club kid mm-hmm. persona that we are discovering more about. Mm-hmm. I can see him being really into, like, 
I think he likes Lord of the Rings. I think he loves Anne McCaffrey novels. Oh, sure. Roger Zelazny. Oh, yeah. Can't get enough of that Zelazny stuff. Mm -hmm. Where do you think he falls on the Piers Anthony? (laughs) I think he likes it as it's coming out, but I think nowadays when he looks back on it, he's like, wow. Wow. (laughs) Nope, that's us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure Cyborg's curled up somewhere with a nice mug of tea and a A Michael Moorcock volume. Yes. And Beast Boy is sitting off to the side, giggling at the name Michael Moorcock. (laughs) There we go. Scene! So I talked a little bit about Cyborg being a uh, drama club kid. Yep. There's a scene in this where he is given a run for his money. We were talking beforehand about the fact that you believe that uh, the AAA gives him a run for his money in that department. Mm Mm-hmm. AAA is definitely emoting all over the place. He has eyes that border on competing with Jericho for just size and volume of liquid they seem to be able to hold at any given time. Mm -hmm. And they are constantly brimming over with that liquid throughout this issue. But I would say that Jericho takes the cake and eats it in a certain scene when they are on the plane, and it is as though he and Cyborg are, ha- are having an emote off. He literally has his oh! hand on his forehead <laughs> as he is like pantomiming, fainting onto a fainting couch. Right. It is spectacular. Cyborg is doing the like World War II pilot gritting his teeth. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're both putting on a show for their other Titanic teammates there. It's just super fun. Yep. If Jericho could talk, I would hear him saying, like from that Robin Hood book on tape, My head hummeth like a hive of bees on a hot June day. Oh, by this and by that, my head hummeth like a hive of bees on a hot June day. Oh! (laughs) God, that was a good tape. Go and cut a cudgel to test thy manhood. (laughs) So much drama. Yeah. So, Dick has talked about, I think, recently the fact that he no longer works at the circus, which is bullshit, because we never got to see the circus. I don't know if he was going to the circus, like, every day in the Batman titles or something, but, uh, we never got to see that circus, but we do get a hint at a possible other career he might have. As a computer sketch artist, he is able to recreate this image of Thea picture-perfect by hitting different options on his supercomputer. It was a pretty fun scene. Do you think he was tempted at any point to like, I don't know, I keep thinking about video game character design things where you get to like create your own character. I was like, do you think he maybe after they did that, it's like, okay, and here's what Thea would look like if we tried to make her look as much like Garfield as possible. (laughs) Here's what she'd look like with donkey ears. Let's just see how wide we can make her mouth. Do you think he went through that shit, too? I don't think so. I think he's... Too serious. Other than the occasional pun, he's pretty humorless. Yeah, I guess. It's a damn shame. What do you think Thea would look like if you made her look as much like Garfield as possible? Garfield Logan or Garfield the Cat? Garfield the Cat, obviously. Corey. Definitely more orange. Yeah, I mean, she's pretty orange already. Yeah. So, I don't know. No, scary. Yeah. Really fucking scary. 
I think probably it would just end up she would look the same, except for she would have a word bubble that said, I love lasagna. You think she would just the same, really? Yeah. Her probably eyes aren't nearly half-lit. No, enough. she would probably look sleepier. Mm-hmm. You're right. And have some whiskers. Mm-hmm. She would like lasagna, though, Corey. I'm not disputing that. Corey Garfield loves lasagna. Uh-huh. Do you think maybe she's going to try to ship Lilith off to Abu Dhabi? And that's all the Garfield I can remember. Well done. Speaking of that sketch artist thing, though, Wonder Girl instantly recognizes Thea and says, that's the image that Hyperion placed into my head when he was mentally coercing me into being his girlfriend. Even putting aside how fucked up that whole thing is, it is extra fucked up that he was like, and here's what my ex-wife looks like. Why would he do that? I couldn't figure that out either. There's not really any reason to. I mean, maybe he was doing like a family photo album. Oh, yeah. Which, gross. Man, fuck Hyperion. He's pretty bad. Yep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, I think we're ready to go. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So let's start off with probably the easiest category, and then we'll segue into one of the harder ones. How's that sound? Okay. What's easy? Sound effects. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I actually found three. Did you have three also? I had three if you count two different screes as two separate ones. I had written down some screes, a buzz, and a yog. Yog. Where was the yog? Yog is when Thea burns the guy who came into our office with the green spitball. Ooh. And makes a really, like, 80s movie level pun. Too, which is this is what kind of cemented my enjoyment of her as a as a bad guy. Oh yeah, where he's like, "What's going on?" And she's like, "Clearly, you've been fired." Or yeah, as say? he burns to death, mm-hmm. isn't it obvious, Leonard? You've been fired. And then I cracked myself up as I was reading that because I thought, "Ooh, sick burn." You'd be a good sidekick for her to have. Mm, You'd be like Flame job. Boy. Oh, that sounds nice. Solar Lad. Hmm. You know? Yeah, so anyway, that I had Yag. I decided to go with Buzz. I missed the Yag, actually. It's a good Yag! But uh, I liked the Buzz. I like that the Titan signal, which appears to be beamed directly into Cyborg's head, still vibrates. He's probably got settings like, uh, you know, pre-cell phone. But like a cell phone. Yeah, like it, it could have different ringtones. Mm-hmm. Like Beast Boy calls him, it probably plays like, I don't know, Smoke on the Water. I think Beast something. Boy calls him, it plays the uh, sad trombone noise. <laughs> 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 you gotta remember they like each other. Yeah, I know, but they do have still a annoying little brother relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's his little brother. He loves him, but he's still just like, ah, this piece of shit. Ah, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're a good guy. Gives him a nug. He's like, but you're a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, fun stuff like that. Fun stuff. Yeah. I never did that to you. No, but Meg did. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, there just weren't very many sound effects, which was why I felt like that was one of the easier mm-hmm. categories. Yeah. Not a ton to choose from. Three. 
On the other hand, sartorially speaking, wow, there's just so much fashion in this and so much to talk about in terms of fashion. What do you want to start with? I showed, uh, as I was reading the comic, I showed Tina, she was sitting there on the couch, um, Jericho's outfit with the purple knee socks and everything else and blue short shorts. It is fucking ridiculous. It is ahead of its time. It is like, I see that and I'm like, oh, that is late 80s, early 90s Portland. He should be at Saturday Market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think they nailed the whole Saturday Market. They absolutely nailed that vibe. Yeah. He's, like, sitting there eating a pint of, I don't know, yogurt. I assumed that it was soup. Um, or soup. White bean and kale soup. <laughs> I liked that the guy pointing him out is like, he's sitting down there over by the bench. So it shows that there is a bench nearby, but he has chosen to sit on the sidewalk instead. It's very earthy. Yeah, it very much is in keeping with the vibe that he is putting out. I would like to talk about the fashion of the guy who directs them to Jericho. Because he's got a lot going on there, too. Mostly, he has the weirdest haircut maybe I've ever seen. It's like a combination of... He's got, like, a shitty little Steven Seagal ponytail that is attached to giant sideburns and a mohawk that is... Receding, maybe. Yeah, it it's really difficult to tell because he looks like a young guy and he's got the full mohawk, but it is like buffeted on either side by what I have to believe is an intentional mimicking of male pattern baldness. It's just really weird looking. Well, it's like he wanted to keep the ponytail, but he also thought Mr. T was super cool. Right. So he gave himself Mr. T on the top and the... Right, but then it loops around like it's shaved on the upper sides, but not on the lower sides. It's a bad look. It's a terrible look. We're not advocating this look. Even no, we're no. talking about it kind of a lot. But <laughs> He's also wearing loafers with no socks and what I believe are velvet pants and a ring-style t-shirt. He's an artist. Yeah, clearly. He's also got a digital watch. It's like just so much thought has been put into his outfit. It's really quite remarkable. There's another gentleman at the outdoor Greenwich Village art show who is shirtless and has bright fuchsia eagle tattoos on his arms that really stand out. And there's one more look I want to get to before... Oh man, there's just so many looks. Let's talk about Coriander's outfit because I don't see how we cannot. Mm-hmm. Yep, that one actually took the cake for me. This was my favorite get-up out of the whole bunch. Why don't you describe it? It is the most 80s thing ever. I don't even know how to describe the shirt. It's sort of like a puffy blouse that's like a blazer also that's tucked into some high-waisted pants, but it is bright yellow with red check marks on it and mm-hmm. very low Like cut. a tic-tac-toe board mm-hmm. that is red lines on yellow that is cut down to, if it does connect, it seems to be happening after it is tucked into her high-waisted pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, super deep V. She's wearing high-heeled shoes with it. No socks. Sunglasses, of course, because she's in disguise. Mm -hmm. Such a good disguise. The pants look shiny. It's a hell of a look. And it would definitely be my favorite look in the story if it were not, for one page later, a gentleman who I call Pink Overalls Roller Skate Punk. He is wearing pink overalls and roller skates and carrying a boombox. 
and has a mohawk and wraparound sunglasses. And that is all he is wearing. He does not have a shirt on with his overalls. And he has the front panel of his overalls cut out to expose his chest and upper abdomen like he was Black Goliath. It is an alarming look. <laughs> and uh, it's one that I really like. Any other fashion you want to talk about? No, I think that covers it. I mean, there's so much that everybody at the, the market is pretty 80s, pretty funky. It's such a pretty issue. Agreed. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, sort of. So there's a, a point, it's on page 20, and Beast Boy references a Harryhausen movie. He specifically references the last Harryhausen movie. Which, due to subject matter and everything, I was like, oh, it's Clash of the Titans, but that came out years before. And so the only one I could find from this era, which seems wrong, is uh, he had a cameo in Spies Like Us. <laughs> Who did he play in Spies Like Us? He plays a certain Dr. Martson. Oh, he must be one of the doctors that gets introduced to mm -hmm. Chevy Chase's character in the Doctor, 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 mm -hmm. Doctor. So it's just really a cameo, but that's yeah. the only one that I could find that I came is, out. Wow. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's delightful, Corey. I had the same one. I assumed they were talking Clash of the Titans because I believe that was the last movie that Roy Harryhausen did special effects on. But yeah, that came out in 1980. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I really like to believe that he's talking about Spies Like <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, too. Corey, every issue of a new Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Beast Boy? I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised that there wasn't really an obvious Beast Boy for me in this issue. It was a difficult one for me to choose, and honestly, for both of them, I end up kind of nitpicking a little bit. Yeah, same here. And um, I, I think, of course, there's my own bias, or I guess both of ours, because we did name a whole category after him. <laughs> but uh, I did have Beast Boy as my Beast Boy. He turns into an eagle that Cyborg can ride on, which is pretty cool. That is pretty but cool. But other than that, he really doesn't do anything of consequence except try and make a stupid joke about something, I think, just because it has the name Lust in it. Right. And other than that, he doesn't really do anything. Yeah. I had a couple to choose from on this. If it's allowed, I would maybe go with the AAA. Just that he shows up and now he can speak to them and communicate with the other Titans. But he doesn't really make much of an effort to do so. And he also doesn't try to introduce himself. Which makes things more difficult for me because we still have to keep calling him the Amnesiac Alien Angel. Or Wings. Or Wings, sure. Or Zack. But I think I'm going to go with Starfire who overall, I think, did a pretty good job. She fought Thea pretty well, but she's still so bad at secret identity and is acting as though she does want to maintain a secret identity, but then does stuff like, in the middle of Greenwich Village Art Festival, decides to just change into her Starfire duds, using the rationale that, I don't think anybody's paying attention. Coriander. You live in a city of 8 million people, and you're a 7-foot-tall, bright orange supermodel. Somebody is looking at you. You missed something crucial. What's that? She uses a Starbolt Blast 
to describe <laughs> to uh, to disguise her transformation. Oh well, then that I'm I'm sure nobody would be able to put that together if there is a flash of light and then the bright orange seven foot supermodel is a completely unrelated seven foot orange lady in a bikini flying away, flying away. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. She put some thought into it. <laughs> so much thought. Oh. All right. Not like there's a phone booth nearby. There was a phone booth nearby. It's New York in the 80s. I didn't see one. <laughs> fine. Well, who did you have as your Aqualad? I had Starfire. I think she did a fine job. <laughs> she protected her friend, but then realized that that was kind of a mistake because her friend was into being carried away by Wings. Zach Wingman. Yeah, Zach Wingman. Oh, there we go. Zach Wingman. And then she was like, oh shit, I probably shouldn't have shot that dude. <laughs> she seems kind of into him. Whoopsie. Whoops. So good for her. Yeah, I get that. She did initially attack him, though, and say like, we warned you last time, buddy. Even though I feel like during their last encounter, she was one of the ones who was more like, uh, Dick, do we really have to kick this guy's ass? Mm -hmm. She came around, man. That's, she, that's a hard thing to do. She did. I actually went with Jericho. Really? I thought he did a good job. He made some nice art that people want to buy. His initial reaction to the amnesiac alien angel was to help him off the ground and introduce himself and be friendly, mm -hmm. which no one else has had that reaction towards him. It blows so, Wingman's mind. Too. He's like, what? People can be courteous and polite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was good shit. Right. Didn't learn that in Pendleton. <laughs> No? No, it's a terrible plan. <laughs> oh, no. Nah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> Get ready for the hate mail <laughs> from all of our Pendleton listeners. Oh, they can't write. <laughs> you surprised yourself with that. I did. <laughs> I wish there was a camera in here. It came out of your mouth and you looked shocked for a second. <laughs> I have nothing against Pendleton. I'm sure you guys are probably literate. Best tree houses. Really nice tree houses. God bless those hippie Ewoks. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Jericho did, which I appreciated, was uh, he was using a very small spoon to eat his soup out of his thermos lid. And I thought, well, that's a good way to make your soup last, Jericho. Nice work. Man, you weren't joking when you said you had to split hairs. That is a... Look at what a tiny little spoon he's using. That is annoying. Yeah, well, that soup is going to last him all afternoon. When you're an have artist, you, ever... you gotta stretch these things out. Have you tried to eat something with a tiny spoon? We have tiny spoons in my house. I never use them. It's very use frustrating. The yeah, I got uh, I got some uh, some like Asian soup spoons. I use them for pretty much everything. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. That's what you should be using, Jericho. Well, no, he's trying to make his soup mm -hmm. last. Corey, Take it's a different Take tinier bites. Thing. You don't need a whole tool for it. That's wasteful. I don't think it's wasteful. I think he's having a nice afternoon. <laughs> Eating a bowl of, <laughs> big bowl of soup with a tiny spoon. Nice way to make the afternoon last. Good job, Jericho. Feeling groovy. Oh! Corey, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozo. What instance of a character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you feel is worthy of highlight? Well... That's right, folks. Natural we, B. We got a big old Natty B. It is from the art dealer with the bad haircut, and it's a really fun one. Mm -hmm. He says to Zach Wingman, 
Watch your stupid wings, bozo! As he shakes his fist in the air, displaying his very nice digital watch. It looks like one of those digital watches that might turn into a tiny robot. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, I feel like that was the chase prize you would get that you would never win in the gumball machine, but that kept you putting quarters in to get your Super Balls. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I miss the calculator watch. I, I got a lot of use out of that thing. I never had one. Damn shame. It is. I feel like I've failed you. That's okay. You're a little better at math. Maybe? I'm okay at addition, but when it comes to addition's tricky pal, subtraction, that's where the wheels come off this thing. Oh. Yeah, but that was a fun uh, natty beat. For other instances of insult in this, I think maybe my favorite is delivered from business lady Thea when she is ripping up one of her underlings' displays and saying, You call these layouts an Art student could do better. Oh, burn. She really leans into that. You can tell from the bold face that uh, she is really using art student as the worst diss she can think of. So uh, it's not a sentiment I share, but well done, Thea. You really took those dudes to the bozone. Yeah, she has another one, too, that I like, which is the classic uh, dolt. Ooh, yeah. Flings a, a dolt. It's a nice old-timey insult. Mm-hmm. Well done, Thea. Corey, what was your favorite panel? Man, yeah, the art in here was great, as Mm -hmm. we said. I really like on page 10, and it's the one that's basically the full page of of Thea wearing her office clothing before she changes it into what I call her sundress. Yeah, because she's the goddess of the sun. Mm Mm-hmm. This one. Ooh. So it's right after she burninates the guy with the kiss. And she's standing there looking down at his charred remains and uh, just looks super evil. It is weird, though, because her, like, 1980s business clothes, I feel like, look more ancient Greek than her sundress, as you describe it, when she goes full-on Greek goddess a couple pages later. Mm-hmm. Either way, they're both good looks for her, though. She's looking at the smoldering ashes of the dude she just burninated. I had, I think, as my favorite panel... One on the page before where she does just melt the dude's face off with her fire kiss. I called it Death Smooch. And I feel like that's a really nice panel. But yeah, that the whole layout of those is really, really well done. And the other one that I really like, there, there's a ton in here. It's difficult to choose one. I already talked about the drama club pose off that Cyborg and Jericho did. That was in, the, in contention for me. But I think I gotta go with the Death Smooch. That smooch is good. It's just, it's really affecting. Yeah. I did have one kind of runner up, which is one of my favorite things about Perez's work is his ability to get into the extreme detail of mechanical things or structural elements. And on page two, there's a, a really nicely executed uh, Chrysler building with uh, wingman flying in front of it. And uh, that's super, super well done. The perspective's great. Uh, detail's great. It is, although it is also almost making the announcement because it is the Chrysler building. I mean, it's an Art Deco image. And so it does have the technical detail you'd get from Perez, but it is also almost announcing, hey, I'm going to do my own style here. And he really does, especially the panels we talked about the few pages after that of Starfire, have a really Art Deco look to them. And I, I feel like that's really well done. Also, all of the artwork that is on display in the art fair is really, really good and really distinct. And 
None of it is done in a representational style, really. And I feel like that was something that Perez had a few missteps with, I would almost say, when there would be the pages of Jericho protecting the artwork when he was doing his weird shit with that. Mm -hmm. It just kind of looked like it could have been a panel from the same book. And this is people doing their own shit. And it's weird looking, kind of abstract modern art. And it's not as easy to just judge that as this is like a regular panel, but not quite as good as it is when it's done in the same style as the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, the amount of work that went into the backgrounds in general in, in this book is, is pretty heavy. Yeah, it's neat. I like it. There is one other panel that I want to talk about, which is on page 20. And it's the sort of uh, team picture when they say that they're going to get ready to go fuck shit up with the other mm -hmm. titans. And at first, I noticed that there was a real sort of disparity in the types of expressions that people have on their faces. And then I got to thinking, what could be the reason for this? Mm -hmm. So Dick looks really determined and he's like, let's go do this. And then Cyborg's like more playful, like, yeah, let's go do this. And Beast Boy's kind of he's jer got like jerking he's his thumb at smug. Cyborg. Yeah. But like, yeah, like, you know, my boy Borgie's got this. Like, we got this. We're cool. But then everybody else in the background, um, Donna looks like it's a look of, and it's more noticeable in the reprint that I have than in the original copy that you have, but like really extreme kind of consternation on her face. Hmm. And I was like, oh man, that looks like she's trying really hard not to pass gas. But then if you look at Jericho's face and Wingman's <laughs> face behind her, they look absolutely disgusted. So I think she has let one go and is not feeling good about it. Oh, and there is what appears to be some bubbling in her, her pants area. In her pantular region. Yeah, there there is a bulge near her crotch that could just be an air bubble that is trapped gas in there. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I I think you kind of nailed what's going on there. Starfire yeah. looks shocked. She really <laughs> she looks really dismayed. Oh no. Yeah, well done. Not my favorite panel, but the one that I got the most laughter out of after thinking about it for a minute. Well done. Well, Corey, I have but one more question I must put to you. Hmm. Waput! In the year of our Lord, 1986, and the month of our Lord, June, what was Aqualad probably up to Waput? Yeah. So again, musical in nature. The previous year, he had discovered the music of uh, Glenn Danzig and the Misfits. Oh. The uh, Legacy of Brutality record came out. It's kind of their first, like, uh, compilation. Which, incidentally, I, I learned that Danzig actually redubbed basically all the instrumental tracks on it himself so he didn't have to pay royalties to the rest of the guys, which was Man. the beginning of one of their legal battles. <laughs> what a fucking turd bag. So that was one thing, just sort of setting some context for the rest of it. Another interest of Aqualad's is uh, sports betting, even though things didn't go so well when he had the bet with Aquaman about the tennis match and everything mm -hmm. that he lost. But he thought he'd uh, give a try with the ponies. Oh, so on June 7th, it was the 118th Belmont race, and he mistakenly thought, due to the horse's name, that actually Glenn Danzig, who we had been learning about through his exposure to the Misfits, was one of the jockeys, and he was like, oh, that guy's pretty tiny. <laughs> I mean, he's a little he's, bit buff, he's, but he's, he's very short. short. Yeah. So that horse is probably going to win. So he went down, and he put all his money on uh, Danzig Connect, <laughs> who won the whole stinking match. Wow. Uh, two minutes and 29.8 uh, seconds. 
and uh, just cashed in. He is flush. Nice. Feeling is largesse. Uh, part of what he did was, I think we had talked about before, his buddy Falco. Yeah. Largest selling German language musician of all time. Mm-hmm. Most famous for, for Rock Me Amadeus. At that time was, was trying to get his single Vienna Calling out and having a little bit of difficulty sort of uh, greasing the wheels of commerce. And so Aqualad spread some cash around, helped him get a little airplay, which helped propel that song to reach number 18 on the charts later on that month on the 21st. Wow. Well done, Aqualad. Adventurous month. Indeed. Well, uh, another way he was spending some of that sweet, sweet Belmont Stakes cash was uh, doing a bit of travel. Hmm. Both Terran and Interstellar. Uh, He had heard about these Omega Men from his Titan pals, so he decided, yeah, I should meet these guys. I've heard good things about them. And so he ended up hanging out with the Omega Men for a little bit. Struck up, oddly enough, a close friendship with the woman who looks like the scary bird lady from Zoobly Zoo. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, apparently she's a pretty nice lady. And so uh, they decided to do some traveling of their own together. They went to New Zealand and started to advocate for gay rights. There was a bill that was coming up in July that did end up passing, in some part due to Aqualad's (laughs) lobbying that was called the Homosexual Law Reform Act which essentially legalized homosexuality in New Zealand for the first time. One of the things that the scary parrot lady from Zoobly Zoo looking lady told Aqualad while she was there was, oh, this is New Zealand. Huh, weird. I actually have some ancestors from here way back in the day. And it wasn't discovered at the time, but it turned out that this lady descended from the enormous carnivorous parrots who used to live in New Zealand back in the day. And Aqualad found this fascinating. So when he got back to the United States, he just told everybody he could think about this because he thought it was like the best science fun fact. Like, hey, did you know that New Zealand used to have giant carnivorous parrots? It wasn't largely known back then. That scientific discovery didn't get confirmed until very recently. But Aqualad could not stop telling people about it. And he told some of his friends in Washington. And that is why on June 27th of 1986, the U.S. government announced that if New Zealand was attacked, the U.S. would not help defend them because they were too scared of the giant carnivorous parrots. That's fair. Harsh but fair. Mm-hmm. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Oh, man. Made a friend, helped advocate for gay rights. Both good. And then scared everyone away from New Zealand <laughs> with his giant parrot talk. Whew. Yeah, I don't remember if that was something that came up on the show or one of the listeners sent it in, the picture of the showing the height of the... Or... Oh, God. It was like, what, like 18 feet? No, but like person-sized. Yeah. At least. It's a big fucking carnivorous parrot. Yeah. And then you sent me the videos of carnivorous parrots. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. That's Those okay. I sent sheep. you the picture of the giant carnivorous parrot. I oh, think okay. after you sent me... Okay, we should the, just uh, stop before We this should escalates. stop our parrot pranking of each other. <laughs> No good can come of it. No good can come Nobody of will scary defend bird us. pictures. No. No, exactly. We'll uh, lose all of our diplomatic relations. What could be worse? With Pendleton. <laughs> well, you already burned that bridge, my yeah, friend. Yeah, sorry about that. They got a nice roundup. That's what I hear. Thanks so much for listening, guys. If you would like to get into touch with us, there are a myriad of ways for you to do so. The newest one being, you can reach us at Titan Up the Defense. P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. 
That's P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. But no pictures of scary parrots. No. We're drawing the line. We've gone too far with this thing already. You can also contact us electronically mm. at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also on uh, Facebook, Tumblr, LinkedIn, Instagram. Where else? Twitter. Twitter, sure, we're there. Mm-hmm. We're all up in the internet. Just zipping around in there like regular lawnmower men. <laughs> yep. Wicked smart. <laughs> A little weird. <laughs> Is that the description of lawnmower man? <laughs> Seems accurate. Yeah. Didn't okay. he get really smart? He read a bunch of books real fast. Is that what he did? He was simple first. Sure. And then... Yeah, it was a real uh, Flowers for Algernon, but with uh, cyber murder. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. I haven't actually seen the movie or read the book. It's been a long time. Probably pretty good. Hmm. Not the best. Okay. Good to know. It's no maximum overdrive. That movie's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Not as good, I gotta say, as the, uh... But what it, it's inspiration, uh, Killdozer. Great... Theodore Sturgeon short story. And a pretty decent made-for-TV movie, too. Oh. And not a bad band. Oh, yeah. Not bad. Let's Talk About Feelings. Pretty good album. Mm Mm-hmm. If you would like to donate to us monetarily, (laughs) you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of free bonus material that is just for our donors. I've been making a lot of videos for October. I made a ton of video reviews of classic spook 'em up comic books. And I'll be doing some more of those, not specifically Halloween-themed, but there's some other audio stuff up there, and there's the monthly podcast that I co-host with Lisa that is What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. Uh, That's our Howard the Duck podcast that comes out every month for our donors. And uh, yeah, it's mostly just a nice way for you to let us know that you dig what we're doing and uh, keep it a viable thing for us to keep doing. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, next week we'll be back with another Defenders comic book. We, I believe, are approaching, if it is not next week, it's coming up soon, the Defender for a Day storyline, which is one that a lot of people have expressed interest in and I'm certainly looking forward to. And then we'll be back in two weeks with the continuation of this uh, Zach Wingman story. We'll find out what his deal is. Zach Wingman. The real Paul McCartney. Sure. Nope. No, no, it's true, because uh, you remember, Paul, of course, faked his own death back in the Magical Mystery Tour days when he said that he was a walrus so that we would all know that he was dead. And then ever since then, he's been impersonated by probably a sentient walrus, mm-hmm. let's say Tusky, mm-hmm. uh, wearing a one of the elaborate DC Universe rubber masks. Well, Paul McCartney went off and visited Mount Olympus and then fell in love with Lilith. So, no, you're totally right. Zach Wingman is the real Paul McCartney. And he left clues, like the band Wings. So which is what clues. probably you kids today... Think of Paul McCartney as the guy with from Wings. Run away. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And they knew it.
license should be revoked. Yeah. All parrot licenses should be revoked. I agree. All right. From here on out, <laughs> no more parrots. Y'all's licenses are revoked. Yeah. By us. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Send them in. Hey, if you want to turn in your parrot license to us, you can do so. You can contact us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311. 20311. Yes. Portland, Oregon, 97294. Pink Overalls Roller Skate Punk. A man who I call Pink Overalls Brand Roller... Brand New Key. Here's a summary from YouTube. Brand New Key is a pop song written by folk singer Melanie Safka. Yeah, the phone thought you were talking to it, I'm sorry. Did you name your phone <laughs> Purple Overalls Roller Skate Punk? Maybe.